Built Not Born, episode 38. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is retired Air Force Colonel Michelle Mo Barrett. Mo Barrett is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. She is a TEDx speaker and author of the book, Pardon My Quirk. Mo has been a keynote speaker of the U.S. Air Force Academy's National Character and Leadership Symposium. Mo categorizes herself a successful failure. She was the first member of her training team to receive an unsatisfactory rating. She still went on to get her wings and become a pilot. She went on to fly C-27As and C-5s for the United States Air Force. After September 11th, Mo was part of a small team to serve in Uzbekistan and Afghanistan to convert airfields to aircraft hubs. Mo had a distinguished career of overcoming adversity, dealing with shame and the stigma of being a lifelong nonconformist. You'll see all the ways she does that in our interview. Mo is such an impressive person. She has such an engaging personality. She tells great stories. She's also a podcast host. She's a keynote speaker. She has a great TEDx talk you can find online, which I'll link into the show notes. And her book, Part of My Quirk, documents her journey. She's funny. I think it's a great hour ahead, so I hope you enjoy. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Mo Barrett, TEDx speaker, author, and lifelong nonconformist. And remember, life is built, not born. Mo Barrett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. This is awesome. Thank you for joining us. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I feel like that's a loaded question, but uh, I'll answer it simply. My name is Mo Barrett, and I'm an anecdotist, which is just a fancy word for storyteller. And basically, what I'm out to do is provide a fresh perspective, and I want to help people laugh, learn, and think in that order. So whether it's through storytelling, MC, moderating a panel, doing a podcast, anytime I can get in front of people and make them laugh, learn, and think, that's what I'm out to do. I want to get into how you got into laugh, learn, and think, uh, your TEDx talk your career at the Air Force Academy, retiring after 25 years as a colonel, which is so impressive. But I want to start all the way back from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I don't know that I ever grew up, but I, I grew older in uh, Northern Virginia, in Fairfax, Virginia. My family house is still there. We kind of still in caretaker status, but yeah, Fairfax, Virginia. What was it like around the dinner table back there in Fairfax, Virginia, say maybe when you were 10 years old? Who was there? What, what was going on? Could you describe the scene? I can. Let's see. 10-year-old me sitting at the table, feet dangling, not touching the floor, looking up to my mom and my dad and my five older siblings. The thing about the dinner table then was, and this is formative for me later, but looking around the table, I looked at the differences and the things that were in common. We're all the same family. These are my siblings, my mom and dad, but everybody except for me wore glasses. And Every glass in front of my siblings and my parents was filled with iced tea. My drinking glass was filled with milk. And everybody in my family, my dad and my five siblings, called my mom by her first name. So the three things I always wanted to know is what age do I turn when I get my glasses from my face, 
when my drinking glass gets filled with iced tea and when I can call my mom by her first name. I still drink milk. I do have glasses now. And I still call my mom by mom because my five siblings were actually my dad's first wife's. He and his first wife had five kids. And then uh, she passed away and then he met my mom and they, what it was formative for me was that I was never raised in a situation where it was like, these are your half brothers or your stepbrothers or stepsisters. It was just, these are your siblings. And I didn't know till I was probably about 12 that they were, that there was anything unusual about my family. Like I'm the only Asian one. And so <laughs> we, we don't look a lot alike, but that just was never, all those labels and those kind of things were never important to my family. It's, this is your family and that's it. Thank you for sharing that. What was it like yeah. you said around 12 years old when you realized that they were your half-brother and sisters? What kind of impact did that have on you when you learned that? I think it didn't have the impact it probably should have when I was 12. I'm a slow learner. So when when I was older, it wasn't until I was 16 that I learned that my the people I was calling aunt and uncle and cousins on my dad's side of the family were actually my dad's first wife's family. Again, they were just my aunt and uncle and it was like the the whole genealogy and and all that part of it wasn't important to me it was what was important was this was these were people who loved me like i was their own cousin niece or anything like that so i think this one thing it did imprint on me early on and i discovered later is that we get caught up in these labels i think there's some labels that are more important than others and some that are just they're just labels and and they're not as important looking back at that time who was your biggest influence when you were a kid I've thought about this question a lot, and I wish I had a less hallmark, less cliche answer, but it's my mom. She's demonstrated bravery and just um, going for it and and doing what's right, no matter what the cost is. The way she just embodies that, and she doesn't. She walks the talk. She doesn't just talk the talk. Last question about that particular mm-hmm. period of your life. If you look back at your childhood, what's the most powerful memory? When I used to ask my mom and dad how they met. My dad would start and he would just weave this beautiful tale that was basically right out of a rom-com or a Disney movie and about how he went to see, he went to the store and he saw this beautiful cashier and he was just enamored by her, wanted to meet her, wanted to talk to her, had to get the courage up. And he went back every day for a week and finally mustered up the courage to ask her out. Then I asked my mom, how does she meet my dad? And her version is like barely staying awake. And she's like, yeah, dad. I don't know. This guy came to the store every day for a week, never said anything. Then finally on the last day, asked me out if I wanted to go for lunch. And I realized then how important and how powerful it is that one event can have different perspectives and how we relay those perspectives and how we relay the unfolding of those events is important. So I always wanted to be the kind of storyteller that drew people in like my dad's version not like my mom's where she could barely stay awake during her version. So just the fact that you have different perspectives and that there's a way to relay it. That was a very impactful and, and uh, meaningful moment for me. That, that is so true. Like one event could have so many different perspectives because right? like, my family, like we could go somewhere on a trip and two people can have the best week ever. And there could be one of us that can't wait to go home. And the other yeah. one, it was okay. Like it was, and you look back and it's just a wildly different perspective a month later when you talk about that week. Isn't that crazy? It's cra- in the same family, same like house, same ex- activities, yeah. events. And it's just, yeah, that that's pretty wild. No, thank you for sharing that. How about yeah, fast forward a little bit here? Okay. I see, first, we look at your impressive biography, 25-year Air Force career, retiring as a colonel. That's good. What brought you to the Air Force Academy? What brought me to the Air Force Academy 
in high school, I was cutting class and a teacher was coming around the corner. So I ducked into like the career center, or whatever. They were supposed to be showing the Naval Academy tape that day and it broke. So they pushed in West Point that broke. And then they just pushed in the Air Force. They said, oh, this school's like the other schools. And it wasn't like any school I'd ever seen. My dad was in World War II. My brother was in the Air Force. And so I always knew I was going to go into the military, hopefully the Air Force. But I saw that Air Force Academy and I ran down to my guidance counselor and I said, coach, I said, I am going to apply to the Air Force Academy. And he laughed at me. And he said, you're not good enough to get into the Air Force Academy. You're not smart enough. Your grades aren't good enough. Your standardized test scores aren't high enough. He goes, you just need to focus on your safety school, which is community college. And I am extremely motivated by the words, no. And and I think that there's a lot of power in that. But having that moment when someone tells you you can't do something that you've decided you want was was pretty motivating and inspiring. Now, he was right the first time. I did apply and I didn't get in, but I tried again. And uh, by this point, it wasn't just about proving him wrong. It was, this was something I wanted to prove him wrong also, but because of something I wanted. So what got me there was the word N-O. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why do you think no is such a powerful motivator? That's a great question. I don't know. There's some, I'm sure there's some reverse psychology in there, but there's a little bit of pride in there and there's some stubbornness and some pride, but being able to do something that basically someone is telling you that you can't or is implying that it's not something that everybody can have. We always want what we can't have. And I think there's a little bit of power and motivation in there. Yeah, no doubt. Even personally, I remember leaving jobs, like leading companies that I've worked for with pretty decent companies with different positions. They told me no for maybe a certain promotion. And I thought it was time for me to do that. And I'm like, I'm going to promote myself somewhere else. And, yep. and it's such a powerful motivator. You don't think I'm good enough? Fine. I'll let me show you. It's only a little bit, it's a little bit of ego, but a little bit of like, yeah, you don't think like someone doubting you. And it's uh, yeah. very motivating, don't you think? Yeah. And there's something to you. Yeah, absolutely. I do think it's motivating, but you mentioned something too about, and I think there's an underlying thing of being appreciated and or valued. So if your company can't promote you into something that you think you were worthy of, then you go to someplace that can appreciate you for what it is you bring to the table. And maybe it is a new career, maybe it's a new skill set, but it's being appreciated and valued for your contributions. Mm, Absolutely. How about, so staying with your time there at the Air Force Academy. So how did you get involved with pilot training? How'd that come about? That was another thing. I I talked to a lot of pilots and they talk about, oh, I was a six-year-old kid laying on the grass and looking up in the sky and I saw this plane going overhead and I said, I'm going to be a pilot someday. I wish I had a cool story like that. Mine was really more just a matter of, it was another opportunity that presented itself and I just walked through the open door and then I worked hard to make the yes a reality. just To me, life is a series of just finding those opportunities, saying yes, and not to everything. I'm not saying like illegal things. I'm just just going in towards something and, and making it and working hard to to get to the yes and then opening another door and another door, just making them happen. So at the time of your pilot training, doing some research, you were the first member of your pilot training class to get a grade of unsatisfactory. Yep. And, th- and this is, if you talk about my favorite failure, this is my favorite failure. So what had happened was I wasn't so good at the landings, the takeoffs I could do, but the landings, the landings were plural. That was the problem. I was bouncing the plane in and bruising instructors and uh, no one wanted to fly with me. But I had one instructor who came in before the flight. We sit down to do the pre-brief and I know we're going to spend an hour on landings. And he draws this barn. He draws the sketch and he draws a barn over the runway. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is a crazy person I'm going to go up in the sky with. And he basically was telling me that when I came down to land to visualize that barn over the runway and imagine flying through it, 
And that would help me transition. So I'm like, all right. So we go out there and I imagine flying through this barn. And every time I have this visual in my head, my landings are perfect because it, I don't know what it did mechanically, but from the perspective that he gave me, it changed how I approached the landings. And so the mechanics were no different than anything else anybody else was doing. But for some reason, no one else needed a barn, but I did. And I, that's my favorite failure because I think we all have that opportunity to provide a barn over someone else's runway. And for all the things that we struggle with, someone has a barn that we can put over our runway. It's like that perspective that someone else provides that's just a little bit different, just a little bit off center line. So we can figure out, hey, this is another way to do that. It doesn't change the mechanics of what we need to do, but it changes how we execute whatever those techniques are that are underneath there and those procedures are. There's few teachers in our lives where they present something that everyone's learning, but they present it to you in a certain way that make it yep. connect with you. And it's just, I get it now. Like I totally yep. get it. I see that in jujitsu. Like there's, there's so many great jujitsu instructors, but there's a few of them that just personally you connect with where they show you something and it's, wow, I get it now where you could train with someone for hours and just not get it. And someone could show it to you in five minutes. Like I got it. And you just want to, right. you're know, like, why didn't you teach me that? Why did it, yeah, these other people? <laughs> and it's more your fault because your brain's wired a certain way, but like they yeah. did something that just connect with some neuron in your brain. You're like, you're not flying right. through a barn. What's that Einstein quote about like, if you keep doing the same thing and expecting different results or something to that effect, it's sometimes you just need to change it up a little bit, do something different and you're going to get a different result. So what's the definition of insanity doing the same yeah, thing yeah, over there. and over? Yep. And, and expect, there you go. There you go. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> absolutely it. So what are you flying? What, what kind of planes are you taking off and landing in? At the time during training, I was flying a Cessna T-37, which is a twin engine. And then from there, the next phase of pilot training was a like a beach jet, more like a, a corporate jet. And then from there, I went to a turboprop in South America. And then after that, I went to the C5, which is a four-engine jet. And I flew that out in Northern California. How long did you, how many years of your 25-year Air Force career did, did you fly? Probably half of it. And then yeah. um, the, the other half I spent um, doing some public affairs, but I also actually went to airfields that were just like a runway and dirt strips, austere fields, and then setting those up. So, and that required someone with aviation experience. So someone from the cockpit who knew what was happening in the cockpit had to go on the ground and um, help set up airfields. So I did that as well. At what point do you realize what it's time to leave the air force and transition back to civilian life? Would you remember that moment? I think it was a series of moments. Like we were talking about before, I didn't feel like I was fully appreciated and fully valued for what I could contribute or what, and, I, and I'm very proud of my 25 years. I didn't want to retire, but I did. And it was just one of those things where you feel it in your bones. It's just time and it's time to get out of the way. So other people can, who've got the energy and the stamina still to, to do that. Mm -hmm. But I tell you what, within the first week I started doing improv comedy, um, some clinics and stuff. And I remember going in there. Okay. So we're going to do this. We're going to throw you some, some, whatever, some bait. And then you're just going to say the first thing that comes to your mind. And I'm thinking my whole life, I've known that the first response that comes to my mind should not come out my mouth. <laughs> so I'm like, what if I cuss or what if I say something inappropriate? They're like, it's okay. It's a safe space. And I felt like in the improv and, and doing that kind of work, I felt appreciated and valued for what my mind came up with on, on the spot like that. Now, I don't live my life like that. I do have a filter every once in a while, but being appreciated and valued for what you can bring to a conversation or to- You're in the Air Force and mm -hmm. you leave the Air Force. And then you go, your first move was what, in, in, join like an improv group or a comedy group? What, what's the, you, so so you, right, 
yeah. So right as I, that was a big jump on it. So (laughs) right as I was um, transitioning out, again, it was one of these things where I said yes for an opportunity. I said yes for opportunity. And after a couple of yeses, I ended up, what did I do first? Oh, I went uh, to get some coach, being coached on speaking. And specifically, Kimberly Weil was my speaking coach. And she led a seminar that was geared toward people doing short form high stakes, i.e. TED Talks. And so I went to this um, conference and that's when I first got introduced to improv that led to me auditioning and applying for a TEDx um, presentation and being accepted for that. And that just started the whole thing and just all the preparation and all the revisions and the whole process of what happens before those 12 minutes. I loved the process. It sucked. It was fun. It was energizing. It was demoralizing. You run this whole emotional gamut. I went to that week long or the weekend um conference with Kimberly Weil. And again, short form, high stakes. And she's been my speaking coach ever since what that was 2019. Yeah. So it just one of those things where I just kept saying yes to the opportunities and taking all the training that came along with it. And it got me into improv, got me into speaking, got me into the TEDx world. So just keep saying yes and working hard to make it happen. There's nothing that one person to another, like laughter, making them able to laugh. Everything from if you're doing a professional talk in a corporate environment with your family, or maybe you're on a date, like if you make that other person laugh consistently, that's the shortest way to connect with somebody. Because can you think of someone that makes you laugh a lot that you don't want to be around? No. If I had a superpower, it's not the fly. When I was little, I wish I could read other people's minds. Facebook cured <laughs> me of that, like totally cured me of that. I do not <laughs> want to read other people's minds. No, no Zero. But like- right. Having the ability to make anyone laugh at the moment, I think that would be the, like, just an amazing superpower. Yeah. And uh, agree. Really cool. agree. So what, do you, so what do you do with that now? So your comedy, your improv. So how do you utilize that now and what you do? So right now what I'm doing, we're speakers, we're trying to get the, the live stages to open up. So a lot of it is on Zoom, as we know. Yep. But whether it's any kind of connection, whether it's in person or online, whether it is keynoting or facilitating workshops or moderating panels, I, I love all that stuff. But at the root of it is anytime I get to connect with other people, whether it's people I know, whether people I don't know, or just mutual friends, but to have that chance to stand in front of them and make them laugh, make them learn and give them something to think about. So I, I did just publish a book um, back in October and it's called Pardon My Quirk. And it jokes to make you laugh, learn and think. And the other thing is even like an opportunity of hosting trivia. So my friend and I host a a podcast that's all entertainment based. And we decided my partner, my life partner and I are partners in a brewery. And so we now every Thursday go host trivia there. And again, there's an opportunity to engage with people in a live setting, in a dynamic and improv setting, because I don't know what they're going to write on their boards. And there's laughter and there's education in the trivia. And then people are talking about it after they leave. So again, that's in line with my values of laughing, learning, and thinking. It's looking at an opportunity, see if it fits what I want to do, and then saying yes to it and working hard to make it happen. Your book that you just released, Part of My mm-hmm. Quirk, how did you know you had a book in your I was I mentioned that I grew up in Northern Virginia and we still have a caretaker for the family home. And I've been going through stuff and finding pictures and finding just you know, all the stuff that people have been hoarding over the years. I found this spiral notebook and on the front of it, it said my creative writing journal. And it was, I'm guessing my handwriting was maybe seven or eight ish. Uh, mm. Hopefully it was that young, but in there it had a table of contents. And in there was an article was every day I had wrote, written out every day. And I, I couldn't tell if maybe my mom and dad gave me a topic. And so that was like, if I was seven feet tall, if I 
had to move. It was all these, if I had to, and it was just like short little, what you would expect from a seven-year-old. And so this whole time I'm thinking, oh, my parents must've given me these writing assignments or something until I get to the one that was titled, if I were a moron. And I was pretty sure my parents wouldn't have given me that as a writing assignment. So I think that I was giving myself writing assignments. So I, I could make the argument that ever since I was seven or eight, I thought I had a book in me that combined with my dad's storytelling prowess to be able to to weave a story, to make it entertaining, but to also make it somewhat poignant. One of the things in the book, uh, tell us about the story where you shocked residents of a small Central American village <laughs> and they saw a female pilot get out of the cockpit. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for reading it. My goodness. Yeah, we were the, I was flying the pan, the twin engine turboprop and it's uh, just a like Air America type vehicle. And we were flying that around Central and South America. We were the first US aircraft to land in this small village this plane, it had a very small takeoff and landing uh, requirement so we could get into little dirt strips. So we land and uh, the entire village had basically shut down the entire, like you could see everybody just lining the fields, kids, adults, and the mayor, it was like the best dressed marshal I had. And he's marshaling us into parking and he, his eyes are getting bigger and bigger. I don't know if we're going to hit something or we've blown somebody over or we're dragging somebody and he's waving us down and he calls my uh, aircraft commander out, the other pilot. And he's talking to him. They're talking in Spanish. And the aircraft commander comes back on. He goes, yeah. So he was all freaked out. And this is what he said. Captain, you're the pilot. It is a woman. Like, that was the big shock of the day. Not like this cool plane. Not like the we shut down the engine. But it's different to them. There were times when I no one would answer me on the radios because you just didn't have women in those roles very much. You know, it was just different. Their culture was different. And it's trying to find that way to say, hey, yes, I can do this. And again, it goes back to the labels thing, right? To them, I was a female pilot. To me, I was just a pilot. To the rest yeah. of my squadron, I was just a pilot. So yeah. uh, to them, a female pilot was different than a pilot. It's amazing when people say, oh, that's the female pilot or that's the right. Italian guy or something like that. <laughs> it's amazing where they have to label it. It's just not the guy. It's just not the pilot where they have to brand what that is because it's a different type of one. And, and they're, it's pretty amazing. It still goes on this day and age. And it's, it's yeah. Uh, so, it's, so speaking of Italian guy, is, is Chica Italian? Uh, yes. Definitely not Irish. Yeah. Definitely. It's Irish. <laughs> <laughs> that's a cool name, man. I was yeah. like, Chica and That's cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. How about what, one last quick story from the book? Tell us about the time you're groping your instructor's leg, learning how to stall the plane. <laughs> you picked all the ones that make you look really good. Awesome. <laughs> so one of the things that we do in the plane, especially when you're first getting familiar with the plane, it's called a confidence maneuver. And it's supposed to give you confidence in the plane because the plane aerodynamically always will seek to fly. So the plane always wants to fly. All my friends that are afraid of flying, I always say the plane wants to fly. You're in turbulence. The plane is going to seek a flying attitude. So stalls are when you essentially starve the aircraft of airspeed and you disrupt that airflow and it causes the plane to, it to start to fall out of the sky so that you can learn that the plane will always seek to fly. And so it's a confidence maneuver. So you do the ground brief, you talk about this, the plane, the aircraft commander, the instructor says, hey, it's going to go from nose high to nose low. We're going to start the airplane. Just aerodynamically, I get what's happening. But it's one of those things when you have like practical knowledge versus like actual learning it versus theoretical. So going out there, I knew what the plane was supposed to do, but the plane didn't go from nose high to nose low. It went from nose high to right wing low. And I was not expecting that. So when we finally recovered, apparently my reaction to the unexpected thing was to look over and see that my hand was grabbing my instructor's. I don't know when I did it. I don't, I know why I did it. I wasn't hitting on him. It was just, I was not expecting that. And he was just kind of like, you okay? I'm like, yeah. He goes, all right. Looks down at his leg. There's my hand. I'm like, 
God, man, it's just not how you want to start your career. The short version is I ended up doing that in the next two planes that I flew because each time it was a different variation of that confidence maneuver. So one time it was just stalls. One time it was secondary stalls and it was unexpected that the plane was going to stall a second time. One time it was unloaded recoveries, which was unexpected because the plane went behind us. And it's one of those things where... It's just amazing that I even ended up in a crew plane. You think they would want to keep me away from other pilots in the cockpit. But each time I learned to layer on what I was going to expect and how to react to that. But the other more important takeaway is at some point, it wasn't the instructor demonstrating it. It was me demonstrating it, which means I've got to have my hands on the throttle and the yoke and not on his leg. Just keeping yourself occupied with and your hands full with your own stuff, not being so inappropriate in the sky. But. I thought, how about how often do you fly these days? Just as a commercial passenger. So I'm okay. just sitting in, you know, row 25E of, of United or something. It's safer. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, right, right. About, la- before we move on, last uh, yeah. little point here, just doing some research. You mentioned that you've dealt with shame, stigma, and struggle and success of being a lifelong nonconformist. Talk about how that affected you and maybe an example of that. So I think the earliest example, I I would say my most ethical kind of challenges, when I was first applying to the Air Force Academy back in the day, you could not be gay and in the military. It was just incompatible with service. So I was at my final interview and it was, and it really was just a formality. The guy's, he's got this clipboard out and he's, you have any, you have any drug use? You have a criminal record? No, sir. You have any problems with homosexuality? And I'm like, yikes. <laughs> now I know what his point was, but in my mind, going back to labels, I knew I was more than just a closeted gay female trying to get into the Air Force Academy. I knew that it had the potential to be a, a leader and an effective leader and a future Air Force officer. So in my head, I answered the question and the question was, do I have any problems with homosexuality? And in my head, I'm thinking, no, I'm very good at it. So I said, no, I do not have any problems with homosexuality. And that's a challenge because there's an ethical thing because I knew what the answer was, but that kind of started that path. I call that my first line in the Air Force. And it started that path where I think, again, we have to be bigger than our labels. And now, as it turns out, by the time I retired from the Air Force, I was married to a woman, another Air Force colonel, and she has my last name. So there was an evolution of what was acceptable and and legal in the military. But again, it's to me, it's just always been an issue of being more than your labels and rising above that. And Mm -hmm. again, I know there's some ethical issues with that. So that was why it's a big challenge for me to even think about this day. But, um, But yeah. From your perspective, how has the military changed? What's different now than then? I think the acceptance of acceptance. I think in one word, it would be acceptance. So there, there are little things like recently. Now I don't have a ponytail, but one recent change the Air Force just went through is letting women wear a ponytail because usually the, the hair can't go below the collar. So you either have it up or you have it cut short. And just recently, I'd say within the past year or two. They've allowed it so that in uniform, you can have your hair in a ponytail, which means it's going below the collar. And that was a big victory for a lot of people. And again, it's it was important at some point for the military to say, you have to have your hair in certain guidelines, but they're changing the guidelines. There's more acceptance because of what are the contributions? So it's kind of like this pros and cons. Okay, you have to have a hair up and or your hair down. 
But in the bigger picture of things, what is the contribution that person who's got the ponytail is providing? So whether it's allowing open homosexuality or they're having, still having the transgender um, inclusion into the military, or as simple as a ponytail being able to be worn, I think there's more acceptance in the contribution of the individual toward the greater whole. And that's been a nice change. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like to move on to a part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets. So our our listeners can get to know you uh, a little bit better. Looking back from everything we spoke about, what do you think was the biggest challenge you ever faced? To me, my biggest challenge was answering that question about, do I have any problems with homosexuality? About Because me being gay was the single biggest blockade between what I wanted, which was to get into the Air Force Academy and getting into the military to, and I've thought about this quite a bit. I I don't know if that person asked the question that way on purpose, because he could have said, are you gay? And that would have been a different quandary. That would have been a different, it probably would have been a different answer too. But looking back on that was the biggest challenge because I knew what the question was geared toward. But I also knew that I was more than that. So it's, it's, do you run the red light when there's no one around and it's 2 a.m. kind of thing? Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. When when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? When I need to clear my mind, a big old piece of blank butcher paper, just a blank piece of paper and not, I'm not talking on an iPad. I've tried it with an iPad. I've tried it digitally. I just need a big piece of butcher paper and just space to write out. And I call it mapping my feelings. I remember one time I had a friend commit suicide and it was a friend with me when I found out. And she said, what do you need? I said, I need a blank piece of paper because I need to decide how I feel. And it wasn't until I heard myself say that. Um, And there's a lot of value in that, in hearing yourself in your own words, just like I think there's power. And when you write something out, seeing yourself in your own handwriting. I think there's value in that too. Not Times New Roman sans serif font, but to write it out. So a lot of times I just take butcher paper and there's something about a blank piece of paper and a permanent marker and making that first mark. And it may not be the one you want to make, but you just make it and you start just mind mapping. And for some reason, I get so much clarity. Um, But if I really need to be charged, I'm also hopeful that I don't have any butcher paper because then it means I get to go to the office supply store and I'm an office supply freak. And so if I'm out of butcher paper, I got to go. But yeah, blank piece of butcher paper and just a marker and just figuring out and mapping how I feel. Why do you think journaling? Journaling is Mm -hmm. so powerful. If you look at like the most influential people ever from Leonardo da Vinci, Ronald Reagan, Anne Frank, Oprah Winfrey, like they all kept journals. They're all different people, all different political affiliations from all different centuries, but they journal. Journaling takes it out of your brain and puts it onto the paper and it like, it helps clarify your thoughts. Yeah. What what do you think? I, I think a lot of it, when people talk about mindfulness, you can call it what you want, being present in the moment, being mindful. But to me, that's what it is because and that's another reason I always encourage people to handwrite versus typing because it slows you down. Because I can type super fast, but when I write, I have to slow down. And to me, that's a, a an exercise in mindfulness because I'm not good at yoga because I will not stay awake. But writing and just being present in the moment and having to slow down to capture those thoughts. And again, I think there's great value in seeing yourself in your own handwriting, just like it is to hear yourself in your own words, in your own voice. Say two people are having like a conversation, they're trying to discussing a problem that you have no stake in the game and it's mm-hmm. not emotional to you at all. And you hear them talking about a problem, 
you could probably come up with an idea that they can try that may work because your mm-hmm. emotions aren't filling your head. I find journaling does that for yourself with no one else in the room. You could take it oh, out of yeah. your head, you put it on the page and you almost look at it as a third person. You're right. like, you know, no, that's a good point. Maybe I could just wake up earlier or, or maybe why I should visit them. I should give them a call. Like, you like, the, something that's when it's all bouncing in your head, you, you, you can't think of it, but you put it on paper and you're like, I think I got, not the perfect move, but I think I got the next move looking at that. Yeah, you see something. You just made me think of something too, is my mom, so I was on a swim team when I was like really young, but my mom was my best swim coach. And my mom is afraid of the water. Cannot just get hives, even thinking about getting in a boat or near the water. But was my best swim coach because A, she didn't have the techniques of, she didn't have any bad habits to to unlearn or to perpetuate. But at the same time, she was also providing that barn of the runway because she saw things differently. And I think just like you're saying, you can separate um, and become that outside observer and find a way to do things differently or just better see what that next step or that next stroke is. That's it. The outside observer. That's it. Yeah. Move on. What was your stroke? Breast. Just the slowest one you could do. Okay. okay, okay. <laughs> awesome. How are about- you a swimmer? Oh, my kids are. I'm not. I'm I'm like your mom. I I coach them a little bit. Nothing to technique. We're just like, hey, your walls, you got to get your walls going. You got to breathe less on your fly. But uh, I swim for safety. How about we spoke books? We spoke about your book, a part of my quirk. Mm -hmm. How about what book influenced your life or changed your mind the most? Do you you have a favorite book? The one that uh, keeps coming up to my my mind is Jen Sincero. I can't remember her her last name, but it's You Are a Badass. Um, There's a little bit of irreverence in that title that I find really respectful. First of all, there's something about when I don't don't know why I I should differentiate between genders, but there's something when a woman cusses, I don't know why it's empowering to me, but also just seeing that on the title, I think it's asterisks out, but it's still... It's irreverent. And I love that irreverence because I think even just thinking about how Betty White was irreverent, not in what she said, but a lot of times in what she didn't say in that kind of irreverence, rest in peace, Betty. But I, there's something about the irreverence and the ownership of that irreverence that I love about you are a badass in Jen's book. So that's one that really just opened my eyes. Hey, she's different. She knows it. She owns it. And she's got a book about it. So yeah. I'm a big fan of hers and uh, yeah. I love her books on Audible because she reads them. Oh, nice. It's by the author. And then she'll say this very poignant thing, like some eloquent, wow, I wish I could write like that. And then, and they'll say, hey, if someone does this to you, say that back. And if they don't agree, you could just tell them to go F themselves. Like it's, <laughs> like it's, it's really street. Like she's really eloquent and professional. They're like this Ivy league writer. And at the end they go, if that doesn't work, just tell them to go F themselves. And like, and it's just out like, Whoa, it's just awesome. It's just like a little Scorsese mixed in with the Ivy league. It's pretty funny. Yeah. I'm a big fan of hers. That's great. Yeah, about, yeah. um, most high achievers have a routine either in the morning or at night. What's either the first or last like 30, 60 minutes of your day look like? Do you have a daily routine? Since I listened to Dr. Arts on your podcast, it now involves not eating at night. But I'll tell you what, I was listening to uh, Christy Art, Dr. Arts just a couple of days ago, and I did my first fast last night. So I was, that's on you. Whenever I'm hungry, I'm going to think about you. (laughs) How great is Dr. Arts? She is just She is phenomenal. You've had her a couple of times though, right? She's like my medical expert. I met her. She did her resident training in Philly. My wife and I live next door to her when she was a resident and we got oh, to cool. know her we became friends and she moved across the country but we stayed in touch and she became an expert in plant-based nutrition and fasting 
and yep. lifestyle medicine. And she's phenomenal. So I, I touch base with her maybe every month or so. But typically what I wish I had some better answer. I get up before the crack of, of dawn and I go run a marathon or whatever. I'm just lazy. My first hour and my last hour are usually, I call it my Monado chair. So that my partner, whenever I make little piles and have all these projects, they call them Monados. They're all over the room. But I'm sitting in my chair and if I don't have a blank piece of butcher paper, I've got an index card or something to write on. And so it just, not necessarily quiet. It looks like I'm lazy, but it feels really good. And it's, it's oftentimes productive, either looking back on what I accomplished for the day what I need to accomplish. It's making another to-do list or I love lists. So it's just sitting still and being present with what I did, what I need to do and, and what is my way forward. Because sometimes I am guilty sometimes of having too much activity and not enough direction. So I want to be able to slow down and find out what that next path is. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes less is more, but that stillness, you, you focus on that one thing you want to do. And yep. don't really move, move that as far as you can before you move on to something else. How about for the last two years, we've been in this middle of this COVID-19 pandemic shutdown. Mm-hmm. So what's the biggest lesson you took of all this since March of like 2020 when the world shut down and opens and shuts down? What's your lesson or takeaway from all this? My takeaway is, is reinforced one of my values of connection because it, it's been really interesting that in this time when we got more shut down and kind of hermited, that we actually got more connected with people. Like I've talked to more people overseas than I never would anyway, because everybody's on Zoom or internet or face chat. I've actually connected with people a lot more or more frequently or deeper because of the shutdown, because we were isolated and we maybe bored with our own thoughts or just have now the ability to reach out to people and connect with people. So connection is one of my values and, and it has really reinforced that and that ability to reach out and connect with people. Cause now we, not that we ever, we always had internet. We always had these tools available for some reason. We just didn't leverage them as well as we do now. Yeah, that's great. How about if you look out to the new year, 2022, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? I want to get on live stages, man. I want to, I, I just want to get out there and I want to feel and hear the energy of laughter. I want to be able to get out there and make people laugh, learn, and think. And again, trivia night has been, that's a weekly thing I get to do. And, and that is fun and I love it, but I want more of it. I want to get out there. And again, whether it's, it's delivering a keynote, I like workshops, I like moderating panels, I like emceeing events, anything that I can do to get out there and interact, connect, and just steal that energy from people is what I want to do. And that's what I'm hoping 2022 has in store. Here's a fun one. If you you could spend a day with any historical figure alive or dead, who would it be? Now, I don't know if this answer is because she just passed, but Betty White, the more videos that pop up, there was a video that is of her and Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock that just popped up and it's, it's not scripted, but it's artificial in that it was from them uh, behind the scenes on the proposal, but her ability to be funny in the void. Again, it's not what you say. Sometimes it's what you left, what you leave unsaid and implied. That is really where the humor is and it's smart humor. I would have loved to have been around that and spend time with her just to watch and just to observe how she does that, her timing and and what she picks up on and what she does as a callback. Because I think her humor was smart, relatively clean, but still irreverent and innocent, but very intentional. We started off talking about growing up in Fairfax, Virginia with your five siblings, your mom and dad. 
if you could go back and talk to the people around that dinner table when you were 10 years old, Mm -hmm. what would you want to tell them? Thank you. I, a lot of times it was so funny when I was setting out to write this book and a lot of it was because you're a speaker, you need to have a speaker's book. But I remember thinking, I don't have any traumatic thing in my life. I don't have any, speaking of, you know, trauma and stuff, when I went, it was getting ready to go on um, at my TEDx in Youngstown, Ohio in 2019, my speaker coach, Kimberly stood backstage with me and I was the last speaker. And she just grabbed me by the shoulders. We did some breathing exercises and she just looked me in the eyes. And I'm like, I'm in this blacked out phase. You've rehearsed so much. I don't even know if I'm speaking English. And she just grabbed me by the shoulders. And she says, look, they've had 12 speakers who have talked about domestic violence, suicide, abuse, disease, all these things. And she goes, and you don't have any of that. And that was the only time, that was the first time that I saw the fact that I didn't have those traumas as a positive thing, that these, the speakers, the listeners had all had a day full of speeches like that, where it was dark and negative and death and dying and disease. And I got to go up there and, okay, so I failed at landing a plane. So I made an ass of myself on a naval base. So I had a a guidance counselor tell me I couldn't do something. But in that, there's a perspective and there's magic in the mundane. So there is there are things that happen because someone makes a casual comment. Like my sister made a casual comment. If they had accepted women at the Air Force Academy when I was applying to colleges, I would have applied. That was a casual comment that she made that changed the trajectory of my life. I applied because of what she said. And my brothers and sisters have all given me lessons that I've taken forward into life and that I still rely on. So I would say thank you. I don't know that I've ever said it enough to them. Those two little words, I don't think you could say enough. I know I don't say it enough. And that, that's yeah, I know, well, I, and, and I value that, that I know that gratitude is a big thing for you, Joe. So I'm, I appreciate that. No, thank you. How about mm-hmm. wrapping up here? If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, Ooh. what would that quote or motto say? Are we talking like full ink or like a henna tattoo or a lick and stick sticker? <laughs> I, that's, that's a great question. I think that's just go legit, <laughs> legit tattoo down the arm, across the back. You mean, you mean like besides that. John Hancock, you know, something cool like that? It would be everyone grows old. Not everyone grows. Maybe a shorter version of really small font. I don't know. But I think we're, we're all on this planet. We're aging every second of the day, but it's what you do with that time. And there's always time for some immature, smart, fun humor. <laughs> Everyone grows old, but not everyone grows up. That's great. Correct. Uh, I think that's about as good of a spot to any as any. Uh, awesome. Bauer, I'd like to thank you for your time sharing your story. So first off, the book, Part of My Quirk, available on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, if people are looking for you and what you do online, where can they find you? Best place I like to send people is my website, the FAQ page. So mobarrett.com slash FAQ. So one O, two R's, two T's. One O, two R, perfect. Mo Barrett, I wish you nothing but success. Best of luck in 2022. And I hope you get on those stages and uh, rock it out like I know you will. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joe.